0: All right. Who are you, David? David, and that's Elliot.
1: And we are delighted to have former Brooklyn Dodger pitcher and a couple other teams, too, Ralph Branca on sports and torts. Now, I have a question. I've always thought it was Branca. I've also heard people say Branca.
2: Well, the Italian is Branca, but I'm USA. I'm an American. It's Branca.
1: Okay. Because David, who is Italian, said, oh, it's Branca. Yeah, well... Which makes sense. He's
2: right. Because the A in Italian is A, Branca,
0: Branca. But you're not only Italian. I see you're Jewish, too.
2: Oh, well, my mother was Hungarian. (laughs) Oh, Hungarian, okay. And was Jewish. She never told me, but she told my sisters and brothers so. So I found out a year and a half ago that she was Jewish. Cause so you got an Italian and a Jewish, Jewish fan right? of
1: So now we can get you into the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, too.
2: <laughs> Not too many in there.
1: <laughs> How did you first start playing baseball?
2: Well, I had an older brother, actually two older brothers, Julius and Edward, and they were 16 or 14 years older. And Julius played on Sunday afternoon, you know, sandlot baseball, so... I used to go watch him, and my first remembrance is when I was six, he was playing and he played left field that time, and he had a hill, like in Cincinnati.
1: Yeah, Crosley Field. He turned
2: to to go back and hit the hill and down he went and broke his nose. So he went to the hospital and I remember, you know, sitting next to him and feeling the warmth of his uniform, which of course was wool. And uh, that's my first recollection of a Seen him play ball.
1: <clears throat> now, your family was from Italy, so you, you're like the first generation to grow up in America. What did your your folks think of playing baseball?
2: Well, it was just natural. You know, my oldest brother played, and Eddie played for the company team. He played softball, and uh, you know, but the family was sports oriented. My mother used to go see the Giants and Yankees on Ladies' Day for 55 cents a ticket. You know, that was Ladies' Day, like used to be like every Friday. And she'd go with my older sisters. And, you know, they took us once in a while, but Julie and Eddie took me to the Giants mainly, because they were Giant fans, and the Yankees stadium. We didn't go to Brooklyn. It was too far away. But So baseball was in the family right from the get-go. Who was your favorite player growing up? I was a Giant fan, so my favorite player was Mel Art and Carl Hubble. And, uh, you know, so we'd go to Giants and, you know, and watch Mel Ott right field and, and watch Hubble pitch, and he had this big screwball, which was his out pitch. And,
1: and th- that was the era when the Giants were pretty good?
2: Yeah, the Giants were pretty good. They, you know, they won in 36. Uh, uh, before I really knew it, they played Washington, I think, in 33. Right. And they played the Yankees again, you know, in the late 30s, and then they tailed off a little, and then they stole a pennant at 51. Because <laughs> the Yankees back then, who were the big main
0: You had DiMaggio, and I mean Yogi well, was later on. They all before didn't you know, And
2: Babe Ruth quit, I think, 33. But then you had Joe D was the big man, and Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig's one of the best players ever, and doesn't get that much mention. You know, but he had 493 home runs. And, uh, you know, had Babe Ruth, uh, I guess, hit in front of him. Hit a home run, so he didn't get a chance to drive <laughs> in runs. But, you know, he was a hell of a first baseman. and Played in all those games consecutively.
0: It was tough on him because he was in Babe Ruth's shadow for a lot of his career. Right. Like babe didn't want him to basically give up the team to Garrett.
2: Well, you know, Babe was Babe. And uh, I think he was there for him, say... 1922
1: or three to 33. So how does a Giants fan end up a Dodger?
2: Of course, the Dodger scouts were smarter. <laughs> you know, it was amazing. I, my old one of my older sisters wrote, my brother John, who was older than me, and was a star pitcher for the high school, and I was second pitcher. You know, he was like 17, I was 18. And we went to the Polar Grounds, the Yankee Stadium, and, and out, way out in Coney Island to uh, a field out there and uh, for the Dodgers to try out. The Giants, I never threw a ball. Because it rained the day before, and they had all the kids come back, we had like 300 guys trying out. And I'm waiting to pitch. My brother threw, and I was next, and they called off the workout. Now he went to the stadium, and uh, they liked me there. What was his name? Chief of non-black, and oh, they just get me. Chief Bender. Chief Bender, yeah, I think so. He was a scout, and he liked me, but he said too young, 'cause I was only 16. And he said too young, getting ch- touch with him next year. And of course, next year came and went, and they didn't get in touch. Then I went out to Brooklyn, and uh, the Dodgers had a trap. Oh man, I can't, I can't think of the name of the park, but. Uh, they liked me and had me come throw batting practice. Well, you know, when I'm 16 years old, I throw batting practice to big leaguers. Uh, and that was back like in August of 42. And uh, I threw batting practice. And the next year, they came and watched me. And they, they waited till school ended in June. And, and I signed with the Dodgers. The Giants never went back to Giants or the Yankees. And they didn't come to me. And they, they should have, of course. You know, I was, now I was the star pitcher on the team. You know, I pitched like every game but one. And, uh, you know, they should have really been around scouting me. But I think during the war they just, they went to sleep. Who did you throw batting practice against? What uh, hitters? I wouldn't remember. You know, the Dodgers, uh, 1942. You know, I don't even remember who it was. But I got the ball over
1: so you sign with Brooklyn, and then you, you start off in the minors?
2: Yeah, I went to Olean, New York, which is Class D. That was, that's, okay. uh, that's in the Pony League, Pennsylvania, Ontario, New York. And I went there and pitched uh, from, say, July, August into September. How long were you
0: in the minors before you got called up for good?
2: Well, the next thing is I got home, and a friend of mine said, hey, you can get a scholarship to NYU. I said, Frank. And I played pro ball. He said, I don't know it, just go. So I went to NYU and played at a basketball scholarship. So I played basketball, and then I played baseball. And, you know, I used to pitch basically every Wednesday and Saturday. And the coach, Bill McCarthy, been there for years, said, you know, I can get you to Boston. My brother's the team doctor and you can get a bonus." And I went, uh-oh. <laughs> so I had to tell him that I was already signed. So that was the end of my college career. So I ended up going to the Dodgers to throw a bit, and they, they signed me. And I remember the guy said, he can pitch for Montreal, and Ricky said, if he can pitch for Montreal, he can pitch for Brooklyn. because so said, we're not a good team in 1944. What was Branch R- Ricky like? We won't talk about him. <laughs> and was a total hypocrite. You know, he was going to give this holy and now nonsense, but yet he never treated a player's fairly. He squeezed the debt out of him to get every penny he could because he was on a... Uh, oh, man, come on, Rob. What's the word I want where He was taking part of the profit sharing. He was getting money from profit sharing, so he tried to make... Every penny he could, so he got his 15% of the profit sharing. He was the guy to take. And, uh, you know, and he really wasn't a player's man. He was just strictly a money man. And, uh, you know, he gets credited for bringing up Jackie, but you have to give the owner's credit for doing it. Remember, they owned the club. Right. And it could have been a negative aspect because it turned out, in Brooklyn especially, turned out to be very positive. And, of course, Ricky was smart enough to pick Jackie because of all the players in the Negro League, Jackie was the one who was smart enough and strong enough to take all the nonsense he took, all the, you know, uh, people getting on his case. uh, And Jackie knew what he was doing, a leader of the race, so he turned the other cheek. He was a fiery, feisty guy, very competitive. And, you know... I could see him a couple times, he wanted to go argue with an umpire and see him turn and walk away, because Ricky told him don't get involved in, in any episode. So, but Jackie was great, Jackie was terrific.
1: Now you played in Montreal and then uh, Jackie subsequently played in Montreal, was that a good environment?
2: Oh yeah, Montreal was terrific, because in Canada they didn't have it, as much of a segregation as if they had any, you know, so he went there and learned how to play actually played uh, second base because he was a shortstop in the Negro League and then he became a first baseman. So it was tough on him his first year. He's playing first base and he's the only black guy in the league and yet he he, he performed admirably. You know, he hit like 297, led the league in stolen bases, you know, and learned how to play first base.
1: Now every year, April 15th, people think of, okay, that's income tax day, but that's also... April 15, 1947, is the day Jackie Robinson broke into the big leagues. Right. And they introduced the players, and you're standing on the field next yeah. to them. Right. How yeah. did that happen?
2: Well, you know, it just happened. I mean, it didn't matter to me, you know. We were like, I look at the picture, third or fourth from home plate, and they didn't do it like today where they organized it. Here's the trainers, here's the coaches, here's the extra men. Everybody just went up and got on the line. And I stood next to Jackie. And when I went home, my brother John, who I mentioned before, a year and a half older, he said, are you crazy? I said, what? He said, you're nuts. He stood next to Jackie. I said, so what? He said, suppose a guy tried to shoot him. It was a lousy shot and missed by three feet. I said, I would have died a hero. Definitely. And don't you know the next year? We were on the other... We're up by first base, I'm standing next to him again. So, I don't know, but that's it. Did other players accept Jackie, or was it basically? Uh, yeah, it took the Southern guys a while, but normally they didn't talk to him for a while. But Like in August, they understood, and they went over and, you know, talked to him like, uh, just as a teammate. Did he share a room, or he had his own room on the road? He had his own room, but there were two uh, newspaper men one from Baltimore and one from uh, Pittsburgh. Oh, I mean, I can remember one guy it was Sam Lacey. right? And the other guy, you'll have to look it up. But they went. They went with Jack, and you know, because he had he had right. somebody, a companion. And then when we went to St. Louis, the only place
1: uh, where he didn't stay in the same hotel, you know, we
2: we stayed at the Chase, and right. he stayed downtown in the black neighborhood. Yeah. But he stayed at. Chicago and Cincinnati, uh, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and Boston.
1: I would assume Dixie Walker had a difficult time.
2: Yeah, but Dixie in August went over to him and you know, said, you know, I want to say that you're helping us win and, I, and, you, and you can play and welcome to the big leagues. Dixie was, I want to say, Birmingham. Or
1: right, some, you know. He had, a, he had a lot of southern country boys right. playing Enis in slaughter. those days.
0: Enos Slaughter wasn't a big fan of his, I know. Oh, Enis, no, Enos
2: Slaughter, no. Enos was from North Carolina.
1: And there's the story of you having a perfect game. Right. And I believe this is, uh, was it Slaughter who spiked Jackie at first base?
2: Yeah. It, I had a perfect I had 21 out in a row. But in the fifth inning, Slaughter came up. He was batting fourth. So he led off the inning, and he hit a ground at a second, and Jackie stretched out, and he stepped on his calf. And, I, of course, I covered because it grounded a second. Automatically, you run over. And I must have been 15 to 20 feet from him, and I kept going. I said to Jackie, I'll get that SOB next time it comes up. And he said, no, no, just keep pitching like you're pitching. Well, don't you know, he led off the eighth inning. I got 21 out in a row, and he hit a C9 ground at uh, between first and second, for the, f- the only hit they got. He went to second, I think, on a ground ball. I walked the guy and then got the last few guys out.
1: So you shouldn't have hit him?
2: Well, yeah, <laughs> you know.
0: Hey, yeah, I'm sorry I listened to Jackie. You ever called Jackie? I shouldn't have listened to you? I would have probably had
2: my nose. No, guy. no. We never discussed it. I, I, who knows? I might have, you know. Uh, maybe Maybe after the game I could have said I should have listened to me and not
0: you. A lot of times people say that that killed Josh Gibson, not being the first black player in the
2: major you know, leagues. Josh Gibson was older, and he was what I hear was a drinker. So they didn't think that he could handle that everyday pressure, talking to newspapermen, talking to playing against the opposition. And J- they say Jackie wasn't the best player in the league. That you know Ricky picked him more for his integrity and his intelligence and his. I want to say toughness, because he was going to take a lot of gaff.
1: Well, it, it took a tough guy right. not to fight back. Right. Because I think Robinson's nature would not be to take any of that gaff. You're
2: absolutely correct. Yeah, Jackie, Jackie, you know, Ricky said don't do anything for like three years. And, you know, as I said, he's going to turn around and argue with the up and turns and walks away until after three years. And then then he would go and argue with you know, if he thought he was safe or whatever.
1: Now, a couple of years after Jackie is with the Dodgers, then then you have yourself an African American catcher in Roy Campanella. Right. And if, even today in the 21st century, it's rare to have an African American catcher. See, he knows
2: it. you know that I don't. They play everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see Elson Howard. I'm trying to say, oh, well, how many black catchers were there? You know, and I don't think it really, okay. it's just that it's a tough position. Yeah. If I had ability, I would not want to be the catcher.
1: Okay. But you you know, to,
2: it's a tough job,
1: yeah. day
0: in and day out, up and down. I mean you had to think, I mean a lot of people thought they weren't smart enough for you to think back there to call the game. Or was the pitcher calling? I call? didn't
2: call the game for me.
0: You called your own pitches. I
2: called my own game. That came from Eddie Stanky. I was, well, I was only like 20. No, I was 19. And I was pitching against the Cubs, and I was leading 3-1, to one, and I threw a changeup to Bill Nicholson, and he hit a home run. So we took the train. We're going out west, and we had dinner on the train. It was a day game, so. And Eddie Stanks, I got a question for you. Yeah? Why'd you throw that changeup? I said, the catcher called for it. He said, oh, really? Did you ever see in a box score losing catcher? <laughs> I said, no. He said, call your own game. You know what you you know how you feel, you know how, that you think you can get them with a fastball or whatever, but call your own game. So uh, from that point on, I call my own game. And, you know, I sure camp in a lot of times. I'd check everybody off. I mean, if I got you out on curveballs twice, and now there's a man on first, and I got it set up with curveball, strike, fastball, strike, fastball up and in. Now the guy said, here comes the curveball again. And I'm going call for a fastball because you know I think hitters sometimes know how to think, but pitchers are smarter. Contrary <laughs> to what Mr. Williams says, pitchers <laughs> are smarter. Oh, <laughs> just, look, just look at all the player reps, and it's, you'll see how often it's a pitcher.
0: <laughs> you
2: had some great players
0: behind you, though. You had Pee Wee Reese, you had Jackie Robinson, Campanella, Duke Snyder. Bill
2: Hodges, Bill Hodges, Ferrello, Carl Farillo. Yeah, it's a great team. You know, it's a shame the Giants stole a pennant, you know. I mean, in '51, that, that's terrible on baseball. That they went in their locker room, looked through a telescope, hooked up a buzzer system to the dugout and to the bullpen, and called the signs. And it was conducive because the locker room was in dead center, the bullpen was in right center, that the pitcher was there, and you looked seven degrees right, and you could see the guy in the bullpen. And then they'd yell from a dugout what the pitch was. And really? they went, they went 37 and seven, a team that was 58 and 52. That's a pretty good turnaround.
0: How did that come out? Did
2: you, anyone know about it at
0: the time, or later on people figured out what was going on?
2: No, I learned about it a couple of years later. I went to Detroit, and a room with a guy named Ted Gray, and I was there about a year. And he said, "You know, I got to tell you something." I was sworn to secrecy, but I got to tell you something. they told me how the giants stole a panic. Herman Franks and Hank Shentz had this telescope that sense had from the Navy, and they sat in Leo's office in dead center, and they hooked up a, a system a buzz system where electrician came and ran up wires to the dugout, and did a bullpen and Sally Buzz. And the buzzer right over his head, right next to his head. And he had one, and he'd hold the towel still. He'd have two, do that. He'd have three. It was three. It was like a change-up or a slider. He'd do that. And the next inning, he went to the dugout. And they would call the signs, like socket, straight ball, be ready, number two, letter. Be ready, curveball, number two. And watch it, number three. And back to the dugout. This time, of us would have a ball, of the talent. He'd hold it, throw it up, throw it back and forth. And all you had to do was go seven degrees to the right. I mean, and I think they stole a pennant at 54. I honestly do, because uh, nobody talks about it, but they won a pennant again at 54. Yeah, yeah That's that's nonsense. Now, when it came out, the commission at that time should have made a move on and said, you know what? The Dodgers won the pennant. Should have won the pennant. They stole it. I'm going to give every player or his heirs a ring saying National League Pennant Winners. I want a ring that says National League Pennant Winners. So
1: it's 1951. You're on the mound. Bobby Thompson's at the plate.
2: I threw my fastball. You couldn't put it more in the middle if you had it. Whatever. That's a middle plate. That's where I threw it. Right dead center. And then the next bit, and I'm surprised he didn't swing, because he says in the interviews, I took the first pitch, and the guys on the bench wanted to kill me. And I go, kill? You know, I see a guy take a pitch. I'm sitting a dog, or whomever whoever it was, but what the H was he thinking of, you know? <laughs> the guy's a fastball pitcher. What was he thinking of? And, of course, the next pitch, he hit the home run, which the pitch was up and in that he normally... He should take. It wasn't even close to being a strike. But he knew it was a fastball. Did he ever admit that he knew what was coming? No. And you know what? When it all came out, I'm very disappointed that he did not admit that he had to sign. We were at Yogi Berra's Museum. And a guy in the audience asking questions when Josh Prager came out with a book. Maybe five years later, 2006. And the guy said, Bobby... I, you were stealing the signs. He said, did you get this? Take the signs during the season? Oh, yeah. How about that game? Well, we only took him the first three at-bats, but it didn't take it the last at-bat. And I looked. I went, if you believe that, I have two bridges right. to sell you. Because you guys to make appearances together on your show. Oh, the yeah. He's shows. a nice guy. Yeah. I mean, but he was only a private. The lieutenants and the colonels and the generals made that decision. You know, to... To go in and steal the signs. And truthfully, they didn't think they could catch us. They just wanted to make it close. But we went 25 and 25, which is terrible for that ball club. A third of the season, play 500 ball. But, you know, Dresden made some awful moves. You know, in fact, the worst move of all was we win the toss. Where do you want to play the games? You want to play the first one in the poll in Ebbets Field? And the, and the first one at Polo Grounds, and the next two in Evans Field. Home field advantage, which worked out for the Giants. We didn't get another at-bat after they scored in the ninth. But if we were home, and he did that at the top of the ninth, we would have had another bat So Justin, and he, he pitched Irv Palika in a game. He said he had a sore arm, and Josh said, no, you don't have a sore arm, it's in your head. So, wise well, guy, prank Eric Polika with his arm in the world. I said, what are you doing? I'm soaking my arm. Why? Because it's sore. I said, don't you know, Charlie said, it's in your head. Put your head in there. (laughs) So Eric Palika gave up three runs in the first inning. Guess what? We lost three to two. That's the first game of a three-game set, like August 10th. I think I pitched the next day and lost like three to two, and Newcomb pitched the next day, and he lost like three to one. Uh, the bats went silent. Nobody talks about it. The team did not hit in the last 50 games. So you had a great staff of you and Don
0: Newcomb. I mean, well,
2: one, the, two was listen, powerful. Newcomb and Preacher Rowe was 22-3 that year, and Erskine probably was 16 or 17 and whatever.
1: You then you had and left. Newcomb
2: and myself, that's a pretty good starting force.
1: Well... And the, the reality is, it was a force, and not these five-man rotations that they have today. You, you make 42 starts in a season, and your arm doesn't fall off.
2: Go read, go read New York, and you'll see why pitches have sore arms. Yeah, because they don't throw enough. They pitch every five days, six, and gee, quality start. Imagine a guy, a guy coming out, and I'm leading three to one. He's taking me out because I threw 78 pitches, or 98 pitches, or 92 pitches. Right. Get, Get out of here you know how many how long how? you pitched last week how many innings seven and this week you went seven yeah last week I threw 140 pitches and this week I threw 80 I went seven innings I didn't count pitches you know that's nonsense counting pitches absolute nonsense a lot of it's the agents though they want to protect
0: the arms but they're not protecting the arms
2: yeah there's more sore arms now than there was in my day when you pitch every four days there's more sore arms now
0: what I felt bad, bad about back in the day was, I mean, I read about Mays, Mantle.
2: Duke Snyder was kind of like the third wheel. You forgot about him. He was better, better outfielder than both of them. He got a better jump on the ball, had a stronger arm than both of them, and more accurate, and charged the ground ball better him, and played in a tough park. Ebbets Field was not 457 feet or 485 feet where he could run forever and never worry about a wall. Mantle didn't worry about a wall. Mays didn't worry about it. Duke had to worry about the wall. And if it hit the scoreboard on this side, it went that way. If it hit over there, it went this way. If it missed the scoreboard and hit the wall, it came this way. If it hit the screen, it went this way. I mean, it was very difficult to play center field in that Duke was a better outfielder than that. And now I can't say that he was a better hitter, because if I had my choice, I'd take Mantle because he was a switch hitter. But, you know, Mays could hit and Duke could hit. I don't know what Mays' lifetime average is, but Duke, I think, is like 310. Mays is probably 325. Mays went down a little because he played a little too well, long. The
1: Mets. Yeah, right. And then he had a right fielder with a pretty good arm named Carl Ferrillo oh,
2: Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> he, had, he had a rifle. Yeah. The Redding rifle. You
1: know, people talk about Clemente's arm and, you know, uh, other... Alavino. Yeah. But I go, as, as I recall, Carl Ferrillo yeah. Pretty good. Pretty good, yeah. Right.
2: Clemente had a great one. Yeah. And he should have been a Dodger, but they... Well, games. he
1: he started off as a Dodger.
2: They left him on Montreal's roster. And they kept a couple of non-entities in the outfield. And Pittsburgh drafted him for 25000 Like, they only played him twice a week. Like, they were hiding him. There's no way you could hide the guy. They should have put him on a roster. 40 man roster.
0: Who made that now decision? that
2: would have been an outfield of arms. Oh, geez. Clemente, Ferrillo, and Snyder. Who made that decision? Ricky, or was that? Arms? I think it was after Ricky. I think it was Puzzy.
1: by that point. Now, you, you got to, to pitch under Walter Alston. What was he like?
2: I didn't pitch under Alston. Was he not there? I pitched two innings, and the SOB forgot me. And I didn't pitch the last three weeks of 1956. I never pitched another inning. I pitched two innings and I hadn't pitched in over a year. And I was more nervous then than when I was 18 years old. And I gave up one hit and I never pitched again.
0: What was his reasoning? He never told you he was a manager. He wasn't smart
2: enough to have a reason. (laughs) He was there because he was Walt Olsen and he worked cheap. But he was a lousy manager. And he won because he had Drysdale and Koufax, and he had a team.
0: And that's when Koufax was just starting to come into his own. Yeah,
2: well, he held him back. Koufax had pitch and pitch a good game, and he wouldn't pitch for two weeks. And they were going nowhere. He should have pitched him every four days, because for next year. So that's
0: why he had control problems. He wasn't pitching enough.
1: Yeah. Well, speaking of Dodger left-handers, how can we forget Tommy Lasorda?
2: Yeah, he won more <laughs> games in the big leagues. He won't watch it. Tommy was a curveballer, you know, and that only goes so far. You know, the best pitch for a a good live fastball. That's where it starts. That's where it sets up. And if you have that, you can throw the curveball and get away with it. If you don't have a fastballer, spit at it. Tommy will throw you 25 curveballs out of 30 pitches. Was Johnny Padres on those teams? Yeah, Johnny Padres came early fifties. He's good pitcher. Yeah, good changeup, sneaky fastball,
1: curve. What hitter gave you the most trouble?
2: Left-handers and right-handers.
1: <laughs> Other than
2: that? <laughs> well, you know, it was it was funny. It was from year to year. Like one year, uh, let's say kind of gave me trouble, you know, and then I, I watched, and Polika threw two curves and he two home runs. You know what? He didn't get many curveballs <laughs> after that. If he did, it was way away. Uh, I'd say, who else gave me some, oh yeah, the, the guy, uh, third baseman for Philadelphia. Eddie Matthews. No, uh, Philly, Philly. Uh.
1: Not, not putting Head Jones. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Put Jones. And then on St. Louis, they had another guy named Jones. Nippy Jones, whatever. Yeah. But, you know, for one year. And then i switch how I pitched him. Like, Monty Irvin in 51 did me pretty good. But, you know, he knew what was coming. You know, before that, no. Well, I'm Thompson never hit a home run off me in all the years till I stole the signs. And then I remember pitching and I threw a curveball really perfect knee-high outside and he stepped in and hit and they said he outcast me and I, I regret to the day that I didn't walk to the dugout and say to Newcomb, Preacher, Erskine, or Clyde King and say, you know, I just threw him a perfect curveball down and away and he stepped in like he knew what was coming and they would, all they had to do was say, maybe they got the signs yeah. and the next inning, you know, I go put down a two, and I'm going to throw a fastball. <laughs> and that's what I would have done. If I thought they had the signs. Put down a two, and I would have drilled one at some guy's chin. Yeah. You know.
1: And that stops it real and quick. If I,
2: if I happened to hit him, I would have said to Leo, "Curveball didn't break." I you know? <laughs> was musical a face. He was tough. You know, I knew he was going to get his hits. You know. He was a tough man. He didn't strike out much. Uh, I I think I, I I don't know. I guess somebody can look it up. But uh, I know he didn't hit 333 against me. You know, maybe 275 or something. But I got him out with change-ups because of his stance. And uh, but he he probably was the toughest hitter that I, I faced. Now you said bring it up because I didn't face Williams much. I only faced Ted Williams about two games, about four times.
0: Who would you say the best player you ever saw play was?
2: Well, I'd have to say DiMaggio, you know. Uh, Then I saw a lot of good players. But, man, Lacoste was great. Kalen was great. Uh, You know, I didn't see enough of Ted Williams because he was in the service and he came back out when I was with Detroit and the Yankees. But uh, Joe D because he did everything right, you know, he played the hitters right, made everything look easy, you know, he didn't make things look hard, he made it look easy.
1: How did you come to wear number 13? A lot of people would avoid that.
2: No. I walked in the locker room and and the guy said, are you superstitious? I said, no, and there was 13 in the family. so. He gave me number 13. That was Higby's number. Now Higby came back, and I got number 20. And when Higby got traded, I went back to 13. Well, that's me. Contrary guy. You
1: know, because there's the classic photo of you after giving up the home run in the locker room with the head, head down. In a way, that moment has catapulted you beyond, you know... 99% 99% of the people who've ever played baseball, you're a part of what's probably the most memorable moment in, in the sport that's more than a century. Are you able to step back and say, yeah, you know, that that's cool on some level, even though you did give up the home run?
2: Yeah, well, that doesn't that didn't bother me at all. 13's my number, and when I found out... like Two and a half years later in Detroit, that they stole the signs, and like people try to get on my case and give me a zinger about the home run. I hey, if you're the manager, who would you send in in that spot? The best pitch you had or the worst pitch you had? You know, and that's what I told my family. Just say, who would you send in? The worst pitch or the best pitch? And you know, if you look at that year, I started out as a reliever. I didn't get a start till May 28th. Okay. Now, I, I kid people about it. Mariano. I said, I pitched maybe three innings twice, from April 15th to May 28th. Now, I go out and I pitch seven innings. And it rains. I went in, took a shower, new oil on my arm, new shirt, went out and got the last six outs. I said, I want to see Mariano do that. <laughs> you know. And I ended up with complete game. And you can look this up. From May 28th into June of uh, 51, I pitched four straight complete games, and the fifth game I was losing one nothing in St. Louis, and they took me out for a pinch hitter in the top of the eighth, and Hodges hit a homer in the ninth with a man on, and we won 2-1. to So, and that's
1: right.
2: five games they used a reliever for two innings. That's my birthday, May 28th. Is it? And you're only
0: 28. I wish. <laughs> no, you don't want to be twenty-eight. No. Not now you're a movie. Not with the, what's going on in this country now. No. Now you're a movie star. I didn't realize it. I once saw a movie with my kids. They said it was the best movie they ever saw. The Parental Guidance with Billy
2: Crystal. It's funny. I, I saw it for the first time. It's funny. It's very good.
1: How did, how did that role come about for you?
2: Well, I knew Billy. I went to see 21, uh, 61. Okay. And I was over doing an interview for Bob Costas for MLB, and he was there. He was also doing an interview with Costas. So he saw me, and I guess that must have put a bug in his head, because he called me like two months later. I said, hey, I got a, a job for you, a part for you in this movie. So I flew to Atlanta, got down there, watched him do some scenes on Monday. On Tuesday, I did that little scene, and he said, that's it. I did one, one take, and I was done.
1: You're a natural. Well, I told
2: us <laughs> other people, all those actors I don't know what they're doing. You, know, you need a product to do one, <laughs> one take. Because their kid read their poem, basically. It was good. He was very good. Nice boy, too. Nice kid. And, of course, I saw the movie, and I watched him make scenes the day before and early in the day on Tuesday. So I did it around I don't know, 1 o'clock. I did one take and said, that's it. I said, no more No more takes. No more takes. So you don't want to play in the mud with Bette Midler and Billy Crystal when we're with the grandkids in the
0: backyard?
2: <laughs> no. Kicking the can. Kick the can, right. <clears throat> no. But now the Jackie Robinson movie's coming out, and a guy's playing me. Uh, hey, Mr. Len Letter or something. Len Better, I don't know.
1: Is he as good looking as you?
2: Guess what I told him. He came <laughs> to see me. I said, you got to go to Plastic Search. <laughs> he said, What? I said, yeah. I said, you're not handsome enough to play me. <laughs> but, but they say the, I'm in the movie a lot because I was very friendly with Jackie. And that's coming out April 12th. And I hear it's a good movie.
1: That's what I hear.
2: Somebody from uh, California told me they saw it. Said it's a good movie.
0: I was hoping you could have a love scene with uh, Marissa Tomei in that movie. <laughs>
2: Why were you down there promoting it?
1: <laughs> I think you need to come up with a screenplay, develop it. We'll get uh, Marissa and Ralph.
0: That's my middle daughter's name. My wife insists it's because of Marissa Tomei.
2: She's from Brooklyn, you know.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah.
2: I don't think so. No? No. She's probably a third of my age. Ben Midler is probably closer. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: I have to ask you, how could you let your daughter... Marry Bobby Valentine.
2: I had nothing to do about it.
1: <laughs> like I, any other parent.
2: I, I told her, he's a ball player, and you make up your own mind.
1: Well, you know. he was,
2: was a good guy. You know? yeah, he he I mean, was. He the, got screwed in Boston.
1: That yeah, was mean, a tough situation. He did a good
2: job, and then that guy stabbed him in the back, the general manager. Never did one thing to help him. Didn't have a left fielder or a center fielder first half. Okay, the left fielder got his wrist shot up in August of the previous year and was sitting home I guess he was waiting maybe putting in the sunshine and let it heal
0: Is that Crawford, in Boston
2: they should have been on his case and had him get operated on in October he got operated on in January and wasn't able to play till July and in center field I heard his shoulder diving into the bag And the second half the young kid playing third base Roderick I think and Big Poppy. well, Big Poppy, they're not going anywhere and he's not going to play and get hurt playing. So he didn't play the last half of the year.
0: And they traded Adrian Gonzale- Gonzalez with Crawford. Yeah, well,
2: they're getting rid of Sally. Right.
1: Now, when Bobby was a hot shot baseball player, did you ever get a chance to uh, to pitch against him? Oh, no, no, no. Not, not even for fun he's, at the family he's picnic? Way,
2: he's way after me.
1: I know he's way after you, but, but you I just thought... You...
2: He he led the Pacific Coast League like in hitting and stuff. Yeah. And he was a shortstop. And Maury Wilson... No, no, Maury Wilson.
1: Billy Bill, Russell, Bill Russell.
2: is out. And Alston... Billy Russell, at short, and, and let Bobby out. And I say to Bobby, he did that because you were friendly with Lasorda. And he hated Lasorda looked like Lissota was trying to get his job, and you, you took the brunt of it. He said, that's not true. I said, well, what other reason? You led the leg in heading in eight different departments. Why wouldn't you be the first choice? So.
0: No, you're right, because of was, what, his third base coach, Austin? Yeah. But of was all antics. He was dancing yeah. out there, jumping.
2: And of, you know, he managed in the minors all many, many years maybe 20, down in the Caribbean. And he stayed in the Dodger organization and eventually became the manager.
1: Now, you did play with the Yankees. Right. What was that like?
2: Well, that was different, you know, because uh, I got there and they were fighting the Indians for the pennant. And they started me in Baltimore, and the umpire squeezed me. I think, I think it was McKinley. I turned the ball on high and he's not given to me. And I'm not smart enough to say, okay, it's three inches above the knees. Of course, Rizzura kept yelling, where is that pitch? And I walked maybe five guys in four innings. And I came out. they only had one run. And then they started me against the Red Sox. And I think I gave up three hits in six innings or seven innings. And Muscarin pinch hit for me, got a double, drove in two runs. And we won three to one. Now, the next weekend, we were in Boston. And I figure I got to start against him. I just pitches three hitter for, say, six innings. Could be seven. And I didn't get a start. I don't understand it. And they put me in relief. And, and I remember pitching a Williams, and they had uh, two and two on them. And I shook my head a couple times, and I threw my fastball. Knee high, all ball, all over the plate, strike three. And I said, I got him. And he up went, ball. And oops, sorry, Mr. Williams is hitting. I was going to say,
1: if he doesn't swing at it, it's not a strike, right? Yeah.
2: Well, <laughs> and you know, I had him shaking my head, which I did many times in a national league, you know. Shake your head and would say, uh-oh, what's he going to throw now? Like, they may think I'm throwing a curve, but I throw the fastball. And I was sneaky fast, so he took it. Yogi jumped up and down, but I gave up a run. We scored a couple runs, and I was going to be the winning pitcher. And whoever relieved me gave up some runs, and and I, I got one more start late in the year, and I hadn't started, you know, for forever. I mean, from say the middle of August to the middle of, of September, and you know I don't know why. Was I could throw I could throw hard again, and yeah, you know I asked Yogi. Yeah, he said, you had good stuff. He said, I don't know why they didn't sign you. You're no, supposed to get a bonus. If I stayed with the Yankees, I would have got a bonus of $7,500. Okay. You probably Did, made more than that from Billy Crystal for them. Yeah. <laughs> I made like $475.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up another Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris. I would like to thank our guests. Jamie Barwick of the Legends Football League, Chicago Bliss. And when's that home opener again? Our first game is at the Sears Center in Hoffman Estates, April 19th at 9 o'clock. And tickets are still available. If you go on to mychicagobliss.com, you can order them. All righty. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks to Ralph Branca. Thanks to our executive producer, Dave Olson. And tune in again next week for Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com.